Anyone growing up around Chicago in the 1970s and 80s might recall the final moments of America's significant era of railroads, the death of which couldn't have been more evident. Locomotives at the end of their service life looked beaten and used up. In fact, from today's perspective, it's surprising that such third-world-looking transportation was a reality. This was the trade-off for cars and trucks. The railroad had gone under and taken with it some amazing conveniences. Conveniences including the ability to board a passenger train on the elevated tracks in the Chicago Loop for a direct ride up the shore to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This was the Chicago North Shore and Milwaukee Railroad, an electric railroad that had operated from July the 16th, 1916 to January the 21st, 1963 on 285.1 track miles, connecting residents of the suburbs such as Kenosha and Highland Park to the city at ease. Today we discover the rise and fall of Chicago's North Shore and Milwaukee Railroad. I'm your host Ryan Sokash and you're watching It's History. This story starts with the Bluff City Electric Street Railway Company in May of 1895, which was a local street railway line in the city of Waukegan, Illinois. The Bluff City Electric Line had already been extended as far south as Highland Park when it was acquired by the newly incorporated Chicago and Milwaukee Electric Railroad in May of 1898. And in the following March, a connection was made to the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railway Line at Wilmette. In August of 1899, service began operating from downtown Waukegan to Church Street in Evanston, where passengers could transfer to trains of the Northwestern Elevated Railroad and continue into the city. For the time, such a connection was really amazing because making that same trip by road was not nearly as smooth of a journey as it would be today, not to mention that cars were still widely unavailable to your average consumer and steam trains were expensive. The rudimentary, single-tracked, interurban line which started it all was steadily upgraded over the following decade, with the addition of a second track, improvements to the physical plant, and the gradual relocation from public roads onto private right-of-way were possible between 1902 and 1904. This simple railroad developed when a new line was constructed, branching from the main line at Lake Bluff to Libertyville. This branch would be extended in 1905, west to Mundelein. This connection made a lot of sense for industry as it connected the larger cities with the major gravel pit east of Libertyville. The new branch line also enabled the interchange of carload freight with both the EJE and the Milwaukee Road at Roundout. Around this same time, a single-track spur line known as the West Line was constructed from the Libertyville branch at Lake Bluff into the city of North Chicago, where it terminated south of 22nd Street. Ambition was high, and by 1904, another major extension to what would become the North Shore Line would occur. In 1904, Chicago and Milwaukee Electric began to purchase property and negotiate contracts for the extension of its service into Wisconsin. Construction between Waukegan and Zion was largely completed by the summer of 1905. Further construction moved at such a pace that trains began operating as far north as Kenosha, Wisconsin. This was followed by Racine in September of 1906, and just when the ultimate goal of connecting Chicago and Milwaukee was in sight, things nearly fell apart. 
The Panic of 1907 forced Chicago and Milwaukee Electric into a prolonged period of insolvency, but in spite of ongoing financial trouble, construction in Wisconsin continued. The northern extension was finally completed in 1908, with through service between Evanston and Milwaukee beginning that October. However, the Chicago and Milwaukee Electric had been placed under receivership in 1908. A receivership is a debt solution that helps a secured creditor recover outside standing amounts under a secured loan to a debtor's business when a debtor defaults. Anyhow, ridership and revenue continue to grow, permitting more improvements to the property. Old images of the line don't really do justice to what an enormous infrastructure project this was. Still, I'd like to give you a little perspective. 131 bridges between Racine and Milwaukee were upgraded. The original main line underwent significant rehabilitation, as did the street railway in Waukegan, which had since begun operating a line on Washington Street. 147 new rolling stock was acquired, including an order of steel coaches delivered from the JG Brill Company in late 1915, when a fantastic concept arose. What if this dynamic new line not only went into Chicago, but perhaps could enjoy a direct connection to the city's L? Planners concluded that indeed, they could eliminate the existing transfer at Church Street and send passengers right into the loop. The electric service would become competitive with steam trains. By 1919, this concept became a reality when further trackage rights were negotiated with the Northeastern Elevated and the St. Paul Railroad, which ultimately permitted North Shoreline trains to operate over the L south of Church Street, over the North Side Main Line, and through the loop to a downtown terminal at Roosevelt. The Roosevelt Terminal has long since faded into the pages of history, but what about the direct connection to Milwaukee? In 1920, a new terminal in Milwaukee was opened and the remaining single track in Wisconsin was doubled. With the exception of a one half mile stretch of single track in southern Milwaukee, which indeed was a bottleneck until the railroad's end, this completed line was basically 20 years in the making. And so although it was complete, it was also difficult to draw new and immediate attention. The railroad did run a number of named limited stop trains, some carrying deluxe dining and parlor observation cars, which indeed served the company a very, very valuable PR message to the public, rides into the city could have an element of glamour. One of the railroad's most distinctive name trains was the Gold Coast Limited. The North Shore also created a network of motor coach lines to feed on potential traffic from territory not directly served by the company's trains. But could you imagine that? People were basically taking the L to a different state and dressing up for the occasion where they would be served fine food. That's a polar opposite to the experience you can expect today. For example, I was once riding the L and some guy sitting behind me sneezed without covering his mouth and the results were explicit. I only point that out because I believe if we had even the slightest of novelty and regality built into everyday burdens such as commuting, we might rise up as a society to enjoy a little dignity. Anyhow, suffice it to say that at the start of the 1920s, the North Shore was a real success, but as time passed, new challenges arose. 
The growth of the North Shore communities provided good traffic levels for the railroad. Still, the increasing congestion of these communities' business districts impeded the railroad's desire to remain competitive with the steam trains providing long-haul service, particularly the Chicago-Milwaukee traffic. The North Shore therefore sought to build a new bypass line through the Skokie Valley, which at those times, albeit hard to imagine, was an undeveloped rural area, approximately four to five miles west of the Lakeshore route. Real estate purchases and financing were arranged in 1923 and 1924, with construction beginning in April of that year. The new line diverged from the Howard Street L station, located at the boundary between Chicago and Evanston. It ran west into the village of Niles Center, now Skokie, continuing to the northwest from that point through the marshy countryside, paralleling the Skokie branch from the Chicago and Northwestern Railway. At South Upton, the new route ran eastward along the North Shore's Mundelein branch until just west of Lake Bluff, at which point a new connection diverged to the north onto what had been a freight-only branch, which connected to the original mainline at North Chicago's junction. An arrangement was made with the Chicago Rapid Transit Company, wherein local L service was begun over the new line to the Dempster Street Station in Niles Center in 1925. It had been anticipated that the opening of the new L line would help launch a real estate boom in the area, as it had decades earlier in other parts of Chicago. The Great Depression had put a damper on the area's growth, and Niles, by that time renamed Skokie, didn't really begin to experience a surge of growth until the 1950s. Though the Niles Center elevated service failed to prosper, the transit operator benefited from the construction of new shop facilities on vacant land along the southern part of the Skokie Valley Line. This spacious facility relieved older, more crowded facilities on the L system and remained to this day as the Chicago Transit Authority's primary maintenance facility. The remaining portion of the North Shore Line's new Skokie Valley Line entered service in 1926. The new route consisted of 18 miles of new double-tracked railroad, and the route was a mere 2.5 miles longer than the old mainline. Because it traversed mostly rural areas, higher speeds could be sustained for longer distances. In conjunction with the completion of the Skokie Valley route, the railroad had now improved the Mundelein branch, building a new terminal and a double-tracked section. Mundelein had previously been served by shuttle service. With the opening of the new Skokie Valley line on June the 5th, 1926, the North Shore inaugurated an hourly Chicago Mundelein local suburban service interspersed with the hourly Chicago-Milwaukee Limited stop trains. Diversion of the Chicago-Milwaukee service onto the Skokie Valley line brought a reduction in travel time of 20 minutes. Add that up over a week's commute. Anyhow, the original main line now designated by the railroad as the shoreline continued to host the Chicago-Waukegan service, which consisted of limited stop Chicago-Waukegan service, as well as all stop local service, each operating at roughly 30 minute headways. In some ways, you might say that this was the peak of the rail line's operational history, as the Great Depression would also bring great challenges. Initially, after the stock market crash of 1929, business went on as usual, but as the depression deepened and as the insult public utility empire began to crumble, 
the railroad once again entered receivership in 1932. The dire economic conditions and high unemployment caused ridership and hence revenues to plummet. This was exacerbated by a labor strike in 1938, brought on by a 15% reduction in wages that kept the railroad from operating for several weeks. In spite of the difficult conditions during the 1930s, the North Shore was able to undertake a major grade separation project along the shoreline. You see, the North Shore had for nearly a quarter century sought to eliminate the hazards and operating costs associated with running a busy railroad through the business districts of one build-up suburb after another. Remember, in many places, these carriages ran in the streets with cars and people. Prior to the Depression, grade separation projects had been funded by the railroad's private capital. Neither the North Shore Line nor the paralleling steam-operated Chicago and Northwestern Railway was in a financial position to undertake such a venture even before the stock market crash of 1929. Even so, in 1937, President Franklin D. Roosevelt and his Secretary of the Interior, Harold L. Ikes of Winnetka, announced a public works administration program to, quote, prime the pump of the American economy. This program allowed the railroads and the communities to obtain federal funding for the grade separation of the two railroads through the business districts. The project was very complicated as rail traffic passed through the construction zone, and the two railroads combined operated more than 200 daily trains. Even so, the grade separation was completed in late 1941, just nine weeks before the United States went to war at a cost of $4.3 million. As the decades passed, train technology started to evolve and the once charming streetcar-style carriages were now aging and seemed unappealing in comparison with the more modern designs that were emerging. So to compete, the North Shore embarked on a program to modernize a portion of its steel coach fleet for both commuter and intercity service in 1939. Some 15 coaches dating from 1929 were modernized practically from the ground up. All electric heating was installed with a new ventilation system, new flooring, new interior decorations and fittings. The car's exteriors were painted green with gray and red trim and were dubbed green lines. These cars were regularly assigned to Skokie Valley limited stop service. The most significant component of the passenger equipment modernization program was the purchase of two articulated streamlined train sets. The train sets consisted of four cars semi-permanently attached. The two end units included operating cabs and smoking or non-smoking coach seating. An additional car provided the tavern slash lounge car. Again, I just adore the idea that intercity commuter trains running over the loop would have lounges on them. These new trains were dubbed Electroliners and were the railroad's premium service running as fast as 90 miles per hour. Between Dempster Street and North Chicago Junction on the North Shore's excellent track and roadbed, entering service on February the 9th, 1941, each train set was scheduled to run five one-way trips in the Chicago-Milwaukee service daily. The Electroliners continued in service until the end of the railroad's operation in 1963, when they were sold to the Philadelphia Suburban Transportation Company and renamed Liberty Liners. They ran between 69th Street, Philadelphia and Norristown. 
the Liberty Liners were ultimately retired around 1979, meaning they outlived the Chicago North Shore and Milwaukee Railroad by almost 10 years. Let me explain. The outbreak of World War II caused the railroads of the United States to see a sharp rise in traffic, even before the challenge of rationing. The North Shore saw its freight and passenger traffic rise to record levels, in part due to railroads serving important military facilities, such as the Army's Fort Sheridan, just north of Highwood, and the Navy's Great Lakes Naval Training Station, just south of North Chicago. North Shore saw its traffic increase to the extent that the railroad was forced to borrow equipment from the Chicago Rapid Transit Company and fellow interurban Chicago, Aurora, and Elgin Railroad, both former Insel properties. This was a great time for the company. Wartime earnings were high enough that the railroad's bankruptcy trustees were able to pay some of their outstanding debt and submit a reorganization plan. After this plan was approved, a new corporation assumed the property in 1946. So at this point, things were still, let's say, on track, but that wouldn't last forever. The first stumble happened because of the failure to resolve a wage dispute taken to the National Mediation Board in 1948. This led to a 91-day work stoppage. The dispute was resolved by increasing both fares and wages, though the company's employees continued to earn less than their counterparts at other areas of railroad. Simultaneously, a decline in rail travel began as initial post-war shortages of automobiles ended. These national trends, coupled with the lost revenue from the three-month strike and the effects of the strike-settling wage increase, created serious passenger revenue losses for the line. In 1949, the railroad sought to curtail some of its more unprofitable services. It started off by getting rid of my favorite features. The dining car service was dropped, service on the shoreline was reduced, and the railroad went as far as filing an application to drop the shoreline altogether. Another way to reduce costs was via bus. For example, when the franchise held by the North Shore subsidiary operating streetcar service in Waukegan ended in 1947, the company felt that a renewal was just not justified, hence they replaced the trains with a bus service. Shoreline trains that used the streetcar tracks to reach downtown Waukegan were also cut back and eventually allowed the tracks to be abandoned. Things started to downward spiral fast. The subsidiary city streetcar service in Milwaukee was discontinued in 1951, but the tracks remained as they were used by mainland service to access the Milwaukee terminal. Right-of-way and trackage between Leland Avenue in Chicago and Linden Avenue in Wilmette were sold to the CTA in 1953, though in theory the shoreline continued to operate. In return for this, the railroad received $7 million in CTA revenue bonds. The railroad wanted out badly. They repeated their petition to abandon the shoreline in 1954. It didn't seem like an obvious move to most. You see, although rush hour traffic levels remained strong, off-peak ridership had declined sharply, and this was hurting their books. But why was the decline happening in the first place? Well, travel time on the shoreline was now roughly twice that of the slightly longer Skokie Valley route, and then the completion of the Edens Expressway through the Skokie Valley in late 1951 caused extreme ridership losses. This was perhaps the final nail in the coffin. And so it was. On July the 24th, 1955, Riders enjoyed the final day of service on that route, and sadly, not much would remain. 
Almost immediately after abandonment, only a short portion of the line was retained to provide access from the North Chicago Junction to the railroad's shop in Highwood. The rest of the line north of Linton Avenue in Wilmette was removed. Much of the right-of-way became automobile parking spaces for commuters who switched to the suburban trains of the parallel CN and W North Line. Most of the rails were physically removed in the succeeding two years. The Chicago Transit Authority purchased the southernmost portion of the Skokie Valley Line between Howard Street and Dempster, and in early 1964, they obtained federal funding for what turned out to be a successful mass transportation pilot project, dubbing the new nonstop service as the Skokie Swift. That same year, the Skokie Valley Transportation Council was formed with the goal of reviving rail service by funding an extension of the Skokie Swift further north. This was prevented, however, by the sale of the trackage between Dempster Street and Lake Cook Road to the Chicago and Northwestern Railway for use as a freight line. The Union Pacific, which had merged with the Chicago and Northwestern in 1995, continued to operate the line until 2001 and was dismantled in 2004. The former North Shore right-of-way from the Illinois border to Milwaukee was sold off piece by piece to numerous private investors. In other places, parts of the North Shore right-of-way have been turned into paved and limestone recreational trails. As part of the Rails to Trails program, the Electroliner train set 801-802 is preserved at the Illinois Railway Museum in Union, Illinois, along with 15 other passenger and freight cars from the railroad. Both Electroliners saw use on SEPTA's high speed in Pennsylvania from 1964 to 1980 before being retired. The other Electroliner set, former 803 to 804, still painted in Liberty Liner's colors, is stored at the Rock Hill Trolley Museum of Pennsylvania. Several other museums have North Shore liner cars preserved, including the museum in South Elgin, Illinois, or the East Troy Electric Railroad Museum in East Troy, for example. The Dempster Station has been preserved, although it's moved 150 feet to the east. Both the Bridgegate and Kenosha stations also survive and are currently in use as commercial housing operations. Abandoned and overgrown sections of the track exist between Dempster Street and Lake Cook Road in the former Skokie Valley right-of-way. It's funny to think that such a massive train network used by hundreds of thousands of people can simply be reduced to fragments of what once was. But these fragments of remnants are also what makes cities interesting. The essence of time as best captured by decay. And with that, I suppose we've reached our conclusion for today. Thank you guys for watching. Until next time, this is Ryan Sokash signing off.